Um, and then, well, I met in the morning and then we met up and, um, yeah, I sat, I was in the car with Darren and he was, he was, didn't tell me what it was, but he was like, we're going to blindfold you. We're going to walk you up to something and you know, don't worry. And anyway, I was convinced the whole time I was blindfolded that I was on the edge of something. And I was like, don't let go of me. They're like, you're not any, you're literally on grass. I was like, I don't believe you. <laughs> and then they showed me it. So I was on the ground and then they showed me like, this is turn around. This is what you're going to kind of stand on. This is Dan Cash. And Dan doesn't like bridges. Well, it's worse than that. He's deathly afraid of them. He actually can't step foot onto one without getting dizzy, feeling sick and starting to panic. And he knows it's kind of a silly fear, but he just can't get his head around happily walking across something so precariously suspended in the air. It's even worse if there's a river beneath, those dark, unknown, watery depths down there waiting for him. And yet here he is, in 2012, on a chilly, overcast morning, standing on the grass by a huge river and a huge bloody bridge. The river is the River Don in Doncaster, and the bridge is actually a viaduct, a massive grey structure of stone and metal. Dan is wearing a blindfold at the time, so he could only see all of this when it was taken off. It felt enormous. I think it was 140 feet. And then I got there, and there were some steps leading up to the railing. And I was like, right, OK. And then I kind of climbed up these steps, which was fine. And then I stood at the top, and I was like, right, this is actually a bit, like, mad. But I didn't, like, I didn't feel scared at all. I think, like, an overwhelming thing was that I'm doing something that I never, ever would have thought I'd do. No, well, I mean, not if you can't even cross a tiny bridge in your own hometown. So I suppose the question remains, why was he doing it? Or rather, how was he doing it? I'm here at the headquarters of Cicero Pharmaceutical Solutions to make a documentary about their new wonder drug called Ramiodin, which they claim completely eradicates the experience of fear. Having been developed for the high-pressure conditions of warfare, it is now being released for civilian use. And tonight, we're going to follow the first members of the public to take this new drug. My name is Tilly Robinson, and you're listening to The Water We Swim In, a seven-part miniseries that explores what system change really means. Each episode investigates a story that helps us understand the way our society's been designed, so that we can see the invisible forces leading us towards the climate crisis. Because in order to know where you're going, you first need to know where you stand and how you got there. Last week, we discovered why our scientific model doesn't really understand how nature works, and how embracing complex systems is key to changing that. In today's episode, we're going to look at one of the most important social narratives ever written and check it for plot holes. Part one, the interpreter. Dan was 20 and working as a teacher in France when he read on Twitter that Darren Brown was looking to find people to appear on his new show. Dan was a big fan, so he responded to Darren's tweet, but he never heard anything back and soon forgot all about it. And then several months later, he received an email from an unrelated production company asking him if he'd like to appear on a new TV show. They were looking for participants who were willing to try a drug that might cure them of their phobias. And Dan thought, I'd quite like to be able to walk across a bridge. 
And then, before he knew it, Dan was in the headquarters of a pharmaceutical company called Cicero, being injected with a drug called Ramiodin. He was then given several bottles of capsule pills and told to take them twice a day for the next few weeks to see whether the drug could lessen his fear of bridges. But, as you might have guessed, this was a Darren Brown show. And Darren loves a twist. Ramiodin doesn't exist. I made it up. It hasn't been developed for the military anywhere. Cicero doesn't exist either. The injection they're getting is a saline solution. And these capsules, which they'll be given later, contain nothing more medicinal than sugar. Everything Dan was taking was a placebo. Now, it's possible you're not completely surprised by this. I mean, Darren Brown is an illusionist, after all. Trickery is his trade. But he's very good at it. And Dan had been well and truly hoodwinked. And you can't blame him. I mean, the amount of detail that went into setting up this fake drug trial was staggering. A whole facility was created, filled with actors pretending to be scientists. Contracts were signed. There were even stickers on the windows for different pharmaceutical brands. Everything needed to be as convincing as possible, because what Darren and his team really wanted to find out was what would happen if someone with deeply established fears truly believed those fears had been chemically eradicated. And in Dan's case... Well, in Dan's case, it meant that he was able to sit on the edge of Doncaster's massive viaduct, his legs dangling above the void. Wow. Wow. Look at you, Dan Cash. I can't believe I'm doing this. Now I know that I'm not scared of bridges or heights, that the phobia has gone Mm. in myself. I know that I can do this. I've done it. I just feel so much more optimistic, so much more positive. And if you were talking to people about taking Ramadan, if somebody said, oh, I don't know whether to take it or not, what would you say? I'd say do it. Definitely do it. Good. Um, There is something uh, I haven't told you about Ramadan. Okay. Yeah, I sat down and Darren sat next to me, and then that's obviously when he said it was a placebo, which... It's ridiculous. I wasn't expecting it. Like, and then almost expecting everything to just go. So I was expecting the whole like fear to just suddenly come back because mm-hmm. I was like, right, it's a placebo. It's not real. Oh my god, here we go. And I, I kind of was waiting for this big like heart drop moment of, oh my god, what am I doing? But he didn't have one. The fear didn't come back. It still hasn't. Dan happily skips across bridges to this very day, and that tells us something. What this particular Darren Brown special was trying to demonstrate was the sheer power of stories. Darren is an illusionist and a showman, which means that he has a particular interest in stories. They're the key to making something feel magic. Get an audience to buy into a narrative and you control what's real. It's a central part of his trade and he understands the power of them and, crucially, their malleability. And in this TV special, he wanted Dan to understand the power of stories. Quite simply, Dan was given a chance to change his mind. He believed in a narrative that went, when I walk over that bridge, I will be scared. And the placebo allowed him to believe in a different narrative. When I walk over that bridge, for whatever reason, I won't be scared. Ramayadan gave him permission to change the story he had about himself. And that was enough to change the reality of his experience. And the reason this worked for Dan, and for all the other participants in Darren's TV show is because they were tapping into a fundamental neurological process. Storytelling. Cognitive psychology has now shown, for a while, 
that our brains are hardwired to create narratives. It's the way that perception works. The left hemisphere, where the language centre of our brain is located, is nicknamed the interpreter because it's constantly sifting through stimuli for us, making causal connections and creating order out of chaos, creating a narrative to explain our actions, our emotions, our thoughts. Without it, we'd drown in a sea of details, overwhelmed by all that data. In the same way that we need a mouth and a stomach in order to eat and digest food, we need our storytelling ability in order to digest reality. Otherwise, it would all be too raw. We use it all the time. Let's say something happens to you. Let's say you lose your job. Now, the way that we see it is that the event, losing your job, something external to you, makes you feel something. Getting fired made me sad. My boss made me feel worthless. That's how we see it. Except, neurologically, that's not really true. It's missing out a crucial step where the interpreter gets to work. The truth is, losing your job might make you feel all manner of things. Angry, embarrassed, relieved, worthless, proud, if you were standing up for something. And it depends on the narrative you have about it, your perception of the event, and the story that you have about yourself. But because it's an implicit process, we aren't really aware we're doing it. We don't consider it. And that can cause problems. OK, here's Matthew, another writer on the podcast. He's going to try something with you. OK, we're going to do an exercise. You'll need to write something down, so grab a pen or open up the Notes app on your phone. I want you to write down a word, all caps. The word is WHIRL. W-H-I-R-L. It's an anagram, and I'm going to give you eight seconds to untangle it. Don't pause the podcast. No cheating. OK, go. Right. Hopefully you've managed that. If not, don't worry. We're just going to move straight on to the next word, which is slapstick. S-L-A-P-S-T-I-C-K. You have another eight seconds. You ready? Go. Did you manage that? Okay, great. Now, the last word is a slightly unusual one. Cinerama. C-I-N-E-R-A-M-A. Go. Stop. Did you get it? If not, don't worry. Because you weren't the only one. This is not your own activity, and just this is this is not to tax you. These are easy things. This is just to kind of get you feeling what we're going to go over. So everybody, if you would take out... This a, a exercise was devised by psychologist Cherise Nixon, who tried it with one of her classes at Penn State University. She gave her students a list of three anagrams and asked them to put up their hands once they had solved each one. What she didn't tell the class was that one half had been handed a different list to the other. The first half received the anagrams that I gave you, well, slapstick and cinerama, but the other half received another list in which the first two words were different. Instead of whirl and slapstick, they were tab and lemon. Now, tab and lemon are really easy anagrams. You could probably solve them in under five seconds without a pen and paper. Tab becomes bat and lemon becomes melon. Whereas whirl and slapstick aren't just difficult anagrams, 
they're actually impossible. Unsolvable. Sorry, I, I kind of wasted your time. Imagine you're in Cherise Nixon's class at Penn State, specifically the half of the class who got the impossible list. You're looking down at Whirl, struggling to unscramble it, and then you start to see a lot of your fellow students put their hands up. They've finished the task already. You don't know that all they've done is turn tab into bat. Miss Nixon tells you to move on and try the next word, slapstick. Again, you can't see any solution, and again, other hands are going up. The hands of geniuses, it seems. Although, unbeknownst to you, these geniuses have simply found melon in lemon. You feel frustrated, maybe a bit stupid. Why can't you do this simple task? And then you come to the third and final word. Here's the thing. Cinerama is an anagram of American. But did you spot it? Maybe, maybe not. But if you didn't, don't worry, because I did everything I could to make it hard for you. I tried to make you feel like a failure by giving you two impossible tasks up top, pretending they were easy. Sharice Nixon did the same thing to her students and made it worse by getting them to believe they were less clever than their classmates. I know, but here's what we did this for. I was able to induce something called learned helplessness in the left side of the room very easily within about five minutes. I want you to think about what happened to you, this left side of the room, when you saw the right side of the room raising their hands because they already had the task done. What happened to you during that time? In this exercise that Matthew just ran through with you, Nixon basically planted the seeds for a story that they would tell themselves, a story in which they couldn't complete the task. And it worked. They believed the story. They couldn't convert Cinerama and they failed. The results were the same when she repeated the experiment in other groups. It's a phenomenon known as learned helplessness. And this is a trap we can all fall into. Because we build these narratives constantly and automatically, we ignore our involvement in their creation and believe them to be objective fact. Which can make us the victim of our own biased thinking and our own self-imposed limitations. And this is what Darren wanted to demonstrate to Dan. Because once you realise your own active role in building these narratives, it gives you the power to check them for falsehoods, to rewrite them if needs be. If you have power over your stories, you have the power to change your reality. So what's this got to do with economics? Well, of course, these stories aren't limited to personal ones. We partake in social and cultural narratives too, collective ways of seeing the world, like religion, philosophy, social traditions. But of course, for the really serious stuff, when we want to understand the mechanisms of the way our society works so we might actively shape it, we like to make things a little more tangible, definite. We like to rely on science. We like to make sure that it's fact, not just a perspective or a story. That's why we like to use data collection, analysis, peer review, objective processes. And what's more serious, more important than economics? Economics is one of the most significant and influential practices in today's society because it helps us understand the way society works. Money makes the world go round and there's hardly a government, international agency or large commercial bank that doesn't have its own staff of economists. It's the mother tongue of public policy, affecting almost every area of our lives. And yet, going into this, I knew nothing about economics. Diddly squat. 
despite the fact that it's evidently pretty central to how society works, it still felt to me, anyway, opaque. Intimidating? Boring, too, probably? Out of my remit, definitely. I think a lot of us feel like that. And to be honest, we get by pretty well knowing the little we do, so what's the incentive to learn more? They've got it covered, right? But then again, if you don't understand any of it, how would you know? Part two. Growth. Forever. So I decided I wanted to get to grips with it, at least the basics. And I started by going back over the notes I had from that one unit of economics I did in my postgrad degree. And I found a definition. Economics is the study of wealth. And wealth is defined as goods and services. So economics is basically the study of the production and the movement of those goods and services. Okay, it still meant very little to me. So I did some more research. I did a refresher course. I learned about supply and demand again. I looked at graphs. And I picked up this much. Economics isn't just about money. It's not the financial sector. It's about how humans behave and the value they place on things. It's kind of about everything. Like, let's start with breakfast. Say you were feeling classic and understated this morning and you went for cornflakes. Right, well, they didn't just appear in your house. The seeds for the corn had to be sown on land that was purchased or rented. Economics. And then after about six months, the corn has to be harvested and taken to a factory where it's rolled out into those little flakes that are toasted. And all of that's done by workers who were paid a wage. Economics. And then the flakes are packaged and sold to a supermarket who then has to determine which price to sell them at, which depends on things like how rare they are and how much demand there is for them. Economics. And then finally, because other people have been paid to make the packaging attractive and to build a brand that's appealing, you choose to start your day with a delicious bowl of toasted corn. It's all economics. So that's clearer. But knowing that it's kind of everything isn't actually very elucidating. And I wanted a way in, you know, to really understanding it. And then I thought, well, what's its goal? In acting, it's well known that the key to getting into your character's skin, to really understanding them and what they're about, is to establish their motivation. And that's because it gives you a particular insight into who they are. Want to understand someone? Ask them what they want their desires, their plans, their dreams, what's the direction in which they hope to advance their narrative? So if we're trying to understand our economy, perhaps we should have a think about its aims. What does our economic policy want to achieve? What's its goal? I mean, the plan, I think, for a stronger economy that has all the makings to be the strongest and most prosperous. We do have a plan for growth, and it involves three things. Growth is up. Stronger than expert expected at 2.9%. It wants to get bigger. That's the goal of our economy. And it's a clear, explicitly stated one. To get as big as possible, as quickly as possible. It's on all the meeting agendas, on all the important documents. That's its MO. It's one true desire. So what does it mean? Well... Growth means more goods and services this year than last year, and even more next year. It means more cornflakes, more farmers to create them, more supermarkets to sell them, more people born to buy them and eat them. And the total value of all of these things is measured by GDP, gross domestic product. Gross meaning total, 
domestic meaning within one country, and product referring to both goods and services. When the economy grows, GDP goes up and vice versa. Sounds ideal. So far. I know that sort of the economic discourse, one of the biggest barriers that economists such as yourself come up against is silence. Has this changed at all over the years? Do you think people are slightly more willing to listen? I, I think it continues with silence. I mean, at least looking at it from my own point of view. I, I mean, I'm, I'm an old man now, so I've been at this a long time. And early on, you know, I, what was dominant, I guess, was silence. I mean, uh, Daly's a little odd. <laughs> like, let him, let him do his thing, you know. Did you sort of receive any hostility for those, for having views that were sort of... Yeah, sure. Partly there was a benign neglect and partly there was definitely hostility. May I introduce you to Herman Daly? Herman is a very skilled economist, but first and foremost, he is a Texan gentleman. When I emailed him to ask if he would talk to me, he didn't reply in the usual way with a list of quotas and questions. He simply wrote, Tilly, it would be a pleasure. Let me know how. Maybe style like that only comes with age. Herman is 84 and sort of resembles a dignified tortoise in aviator-style glasses. Through Zoom, I caught a glimpse of his life, shelves heaving with books, notes pinned to the wall. He lives with his wife of 60 years, Marsha, who, after we'd been talking for a couple of hours, appeared and started tidying up quite loudly. That's when I realised it must be lunchtime in Texas and wrapped up our interview. But our conversation started with Herman suggesting that he tell me a story. So maybe, maybe I can tell a story. This is actually a very true story, and it takes place in 1992 when I'd gone to work for the World Bank in their environment department. Herman was born in the 1930s, a decade defined by the Great Depression, a time of unemployment and widespread destitution. So maybe it's no surprise then that when it came to choosing college majors, Herman chose economics. Well, he thought, maybe it'll help resolve poverty. And over the course of his long career, Herman did introduce some seminal ideas. So when he was 54, he was hired by the World Bank as one of their senior economists. And he hoped he could do some good there. The World Bank does every year or two what they call a world development report, which takes some topic and goes into it in depth. And in 1992, they were doing their first one ever on environment and development. So I was very pleased with that. This was great. This was a real chance to say something. So here comes the first draft of the report, hands on my desk. I eagerly start to read. And there in the first chapter pages was a diagram. The caption of the diagram was the relation of the economy to the environment. Diagrams are a big deal in economics. The diagram that the World Bank gave Herman was a riff on something called Samuelson's circular flow. The circular flow also looked at the economy as a whole, but it did it by imagining it as a sort of plumbing system, where money acts like water being pumped around the pipes, siphoned off and reintroduced by various drains and taps. It was used to demonstrate the interdependence of production and consumption, showing how wealth moves through society. One engineer-turned-economist even constructed a working model, a hydraulic machine with actual pipes in water. And this particular diagram, the circular flow, was incredibly influential. 
The book it was first published in is the best-selling economic textbook of all time. In a way, the diagram forms the foundation of our economic story. But Herman felt that there was a problem with it. It was missing something. The Earth. Paul Samuelson was trying to demonstrate the flow of money around the economy. And he did it very nicely. So nicely that it became the go-to diagram of the economy. Which is a problem. Because, of course, the economy isn't just a diagram on an otherwise blank page. It's not a hydraulic machine exhibited in an empty room. It exists within the biosphere of our planet, requiring colossal amounts of material and fuel and expelling colossal amounts of heat and waste. When I described the system of exchange that produces your cornflakes, I didn't mention the flow of energy and matter that's involved, the fact that everything in that process relies on resources from the Earth, and that all the waste that is produced by that process is expected to be absorbed by the Earth. And of course, it's not just cornflakes. This goes for everything that's produced and consumed on the entire planet, ever. All the goods, all the services, used by everyone. The fact is, the economy can't exist without the environment. And yet it is almost always conceptualised without it. Samuelson's circular flow demonstrated the flow of money without the wider context. And for years and years, everyone did the same. We forgot the Earth. We forgot that we lived in it. And we forgot that we were dependent upon it. And that's okay, because now, in 1992, the World Bank has hired Herman to show them that wider context. So here he was, looking at their first attempt at a new diagram entitled The Relation of the Economy to the Environment. And he was excited because, in his words, this was a chance to really say something. Well, the picture was a rectangle labelled economy and an arrow coming in from the left labelled inputs and an arrow exiting to the right labelled outputs. No further discussion in the text about the diagram. An arrow coming in from the ether and exiting, apparently, back out into the ether. It's not exactly what Herman had in mind. He said, well, okay. So I wrote my comment. One has to try to be a little bit uh, careful with what one says. And, you know. So I said, well, this is a very good idea to draw a diagram. That'll just get us started in the right direction. Uh, but this diagram does not have the environment. It only has a picture of the economy. And the arrow coming in from the left comes from nowhere. We don't know what it is. The arrow exiting to the right goes nowhere. We don't know where it's going. So what we need is to put in the environment. Let's draw a great big circle around that rectangle. And then we can say, and we'll label that circle environment. Then we'll know that the environment is supplying the inputs and it's absorbing the outputs. So Herman did just that. He expanded the diagram to represent the biosphere in which the economy exists. And he did it as simply as he knew how, by drawing a circle around the rectangle that was already there, the rectangle that represents the economy. Just drew a circle around it. And this was the version he submitted for their consideration. And back it came, and they'd made some alterations. They changed the circle to a big rectangle to represent 
the layers of the economy instead. Herman described it as a picture frame. But the circle had gone. So still no environment. So I wrote back and basically said the same thing all over again and uh, made a few extra suggestions. Then here comes the third draft after that. No more diagram. They completely gave up. It's too difficult to draw a diagram of the economy to the larger ecosystem. That really got me. I said, why? What, you know, why is it so difficult? Well, it's difficult because if you do that, it threatens you with obvious questions to which you do not have a good answer. As painfully simple as Herman's diagram was, the World Bank found it impossible to accept it because it threatened them with obvious questions to which they did not have a good answer. Because as soon as they let Herman draw that circle, our economic story didn't make any sense. Our goal is growth, right? But, like, forever. Our goal is perpetual growth. And that would be fine if we had a whole universe to expand into, if we had an infinite stash of material to draw from and an infinite amount of space to chuck the byproduct, if the economy existed within a void. But it doesn't. It exists within the Earth. And that's all the space we have. And as we know, there's only so much carbon our atmosphere can handle, only so many chemicals our ecosystems can absorb. There's only so much space we can occupy. Already, we know that we're in the danger zone and pushing the limits of our planetary boundaries. These days, economics is all about maths. So let's do some calculations. Anthropologist Jason Hickel estimates that the maximum amount of materials we could sensibly consume in a year is about 50 billion tonnes. 50 billion tonnes of stuff to make, consume, dispose of. And after that, we start destroying the web of life our existence depends upon. We're currently using 80 billion, which is already 60% over the safe limit. But according to our goal, we want to continue growing by at least 3% each year. So if we carry on as we are, by 2050, we'll be looking at 180 billion tonnes each year. And humans aren't really programmed to understand exponential growth, but we want our economy to grow exponentially. And that means that that 3% of economic growth each year means the economy doubles every 24 years. That means 180 billion tonnes becomes 360 billion tonnes. And 24 years after that, 720 billion tonnes. And it continues doubling and doubling all the way up to 144,000 billion tonnes of material per year by the year 2100. That's a long way from 50. And very much not feasible for our survival. I don't know about you, but learning this, it struck me that the costs are outweighing the gains. That the economy is, by definition, becoming uneconomical. But of course, if you don't do the calculations, then you don't have to deal with the problem. I suppose so. You just, what ends up happening is you do not perceive or register any cost to growth. I mean, you're not giving up anything when you grow. There's no opportunity cost. You don't grow into a finite environment. You just grow into an infinite void. Uh, Well, that's kind of silly. I mean, really, when you stop and look at it. But, of course, the secret is don't stop and look at it. Don't draw the diagram. Let me just give you uh, some complicated examples. Because I don't want you to get the impression that loops occur singly 
We may pick them out to look at singly, but in fact, almost always we find loops embedded in loops and connected to loops and so on, and then things get a little complicated. Herman, brilliant as he is, and he is, by the way, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize in 2018, wasn't the first person to point out that we have a flaw in our plan. The person you can hear is Danella Meadows, giving a lecture in the 1970s. She looks like something from Little Women. She's sort of a pinafore dress layered over a plaid shirt, a low bun where her hair is swept over her ears, and she speaks very gently. But what she had to say certainly packed a punch. Meadows' scientific field was complexity, or, you might remember it, as systems thinking. Today I would like to try to tell you what I regard as the essence of system dynamics as a philosophy for learning about complex systems. And it is a philosophy. I want you to understand that this is going to be a difficult task for me to do. It's, it's kind of like describing the lenses in your eyes, which you never see, you only see through. Danella was a systems specialist, which we know from last week's episode means she saw the world in a different way to most scientists. She saw the whole picture and she knew how interconnected everything is. So, in 1972, along with several other authors, she wrote a report in which they calculated, using systems thinking, what will happen if we keep chasing growth. And their findings were pretty clear. We'll run out of stuff, and we'll run out of space. And that will lead to system collapse. They called the report Limits to Growth. It was actually really widely read, and it went on to become one of the best-selling environmental titles in history. And still, it was ultimately ignored. How could they ignore something like that? In fact, how could they make such a massive mistake to begin with and then not revise it and refuse to draw Herman's diagram? Economists, we're talking about economists who create the mother tongue of public policy, who advise banks and governments and international agencies. How could they not revise their theories when we're clearly hurtling towards catastrophe? Well, maybe because in reality, the nature of economics has actually been ambiguous for centuries. The ancient Greeks thought of it as an art, you know, the art of household management. But by the 1600s, science had become much more prestigious, thanks to people like Isaac Newton, and economists were vying to be viewed with the same authority. So, economics adopted some aspects of science, and since then, it's been thought of as a science, initially as a political science and then as a behavioural one. But it's never actually fully embraced the scientific process the one that really makes sure you're dealing with objective fact. It's sort of become an academic hybrid. And that's a weird combination. You know, the way that this has happened, I think, historically, is that there has been external criticism of economics. And the response of the economists has been to tighten the circle to, well, they used to teach methodology. Now they don't include courses in methodology anymore. There used to be courses in comparative economic system, capitalism, socialism, so forth. Now the idea is, well, you know, there's no alternative. I mean, capitalism is going out. So whatever is comes under critique from the outside gets jettisoned and you circle the wagons more tightly and defend your, your little core area. That sounds to me more like it's becoming less of a science and more of an ideology. More of an ideology, yes, I think that's true. According to Herman, economics has become an ideology that thinks of itself as a science. A discipline that has confidence in its own objectivity, 
without really practising any. That's to say, it's a story that's forgotten it's a story. It's basically a fairy tale, and I think uh, the young Swedish girl, she nailed it. She, she called it a fairy tale, and uh, I think she hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. It is a fairy tale. It's, it's just like the, you know, the, the king's new clothes. You know, it takes a child to say, look, the king doesn't have any clothes on. If something is part narrative, you can get things wrong. But if you're convinced that what you know is hard, cold, irrefutable fact, you're probably not going to be willing to review it. Daly's a little odd, remember? Let him do his own thing. But obviously, that becomes harder to do as time goes on. Danella Meadows may have been disparaged and laughed off stage by many of her peers, but it turns out her calculations weren't far off. In fact, if you follow her projections through to 2023, we're pretty much right on track, following the trajectory that she laid out 50 years ago. And the effects that she predicted that we're experiencing are becoming pretty difficult to ignore. Biodiversity loss, chemical saturation, climate change. It's becoming apparent that we need to do something, even to those who think Danella and Herman are a little odd. But if we need to do something and we're not listening to either of them, what's the plan? Part three, the plane that can't come down. So, the problem economists are facing. We don't want to limit economic growth. That's still our goal for lots of great reasons. But also, it's becoming harder and harder to ignore the fact that unfettered growth has serious and scary repercussions for both us and the economy. So what do we do? I'm going to borrow an image from economist Kate Rayworth here to explain the solution, because it does a pretty good job of illustrating it. Imagine economic growth as an enormous passenger jet, a commercial airliner, and the whole human population's on board. And it's nice on the plane, for those of us in business class at least. But the pilots in the cockpit know that not is all as it seems. There's something wrong with the plane, a small malfunction that means big trouble. And they have to make a decision about what to do. Now, some of these pilots, it's a big plane, there's a lot of pilots, some of these pilots don't believe that there's anything wrong with the plane. They just want to keep flying, and they're happy to ignore any passengers who complain about terrible grinding noise coming from the engines. What do passengers know about planes anyway? Other pilots recognise there's a problem, but they don't think that there's any way to safely land the plane. A smooth descent is not possible. The only way this plane is coming into contact with the Earth is at 300 miles per hour, meaning a big explosion and instant death for all those on board. Their preferred approach is to try and fix the plane whilst it's in the air to get human ingenuity to transform the engine, to make it electric and solar-powered, allowing us to fly forever. This is something called green growth. Green growth is basically the idea that we can decouple or separate economic growth from ecological degradation. So we can keep growing the economy as planned, but by switching to renewable energy and increasing the efficiency with which we use materials, we won't have to destroy ourselves in the process. Growth happens, but resource depletion and pollution don't. We keep the plane in the air, keep growing, but change the way we do it, just tweak the design. And it makes sense. It's been sanctioned at the very top. Even the Paris Agreement is based on its possibility. It's the horse that everyone's backing. I wanted to talk to someone about it to understand how it would work. But having talked to Herman, I thought it prudent to find a top economist who has been adequately critical of perpetual growth. 
someone who understands the scale of the problem in the engine and who can appraise the fix fairly. So I contacted Tim Jackson. Tim's a serious man with serious white hair and serious black eyebrows, so it was interesting to find out that he had a more playful, creative side. As well as being one of the top economists in the UK, Tim's also a playwright. You listen carefully. You'll hear a repeated pattern of three calls. There it is again, you hear it. Sounds like a bloody foghorn. It's quite eerie. But he was suddenly all business when I asked him about green growth. What economists come along and they say, actually, you know, if we're clever enough with technology, we can reduce the material impacts of that growth almost indefinitely. We can reduce the carbon associated with fossil fuels by changing it to renewable energy. We can improve the technology of our processes over and over again. And what that will allow us to do, and this is the economists saying this really, is that will allow us to ban economic activity measured in money, but at the same time reduce the material impacts that it has on the planet. And we can go on doing that indefinitely, is their argument. Tim explained to me that green growth relies on the development of technology that changes the way we consume, that helps us become super efficient with our materials, use less stuff, keep our stuff longer, produce less waste... If we make it so that the economy doesn't have a negative impact on our planet, then we can keep growing it forever. Obviously, that's not going to be easy. We'd have to switch from a goods-based economy to a services-based economy, so think more classes and tours for birthday gifts than new clothes from ASOS. It would also have to become circular. Materials are cycled around and around, shared, reused, recycled. Not easy, but doable, right? Well, there is just one problem. The technology needed for this to work doesn't exist. We just have to assume that it will develop in time. And given our crazy rate of technological development over the last hundred years, taking us from steam engines to facial recognition, perhaps it's not crazy to assume that we will just keep on evolving, fix the engine in the air, tweak a few things and keep flying forever. The question around that, and it's a really serious question, is how far can you go with that technology? How far can you reduce? And also, how fast can you reduce? Because even if you can do it for a certain number of years, you know, to reduce your efficiency, and even if there aren't any limits on efficiency itself, which it turns out there are for thermodynamic reasons, the question is, can you run fast enough up that escalator as it's coming down faster and faster towards you because you've expanded the economy in the process? So it's a great idea, but here lies the problem. It doesn't matter how quickly you climb an escalator if it's constantly speeding up, coming faster down towards you. We could be 100 times more efficient than we are, but if the scale of the economy keeps growing exponentially as well, our impact remains as damaging as ever. It's a fantastic idea, Green Growth, but the reality of it is, is, you know, historically at least we, we just haven't delivered green growth and the challenge of delivering it even over the short term is really substantial because of those dynamics and the challenge of delivering it forever if you're talking about infinite economic growth which some economists do is impossible impossible yeah thermodynamically impossible there are limits to the efficiency of processes 
And so at some point, you know, it might not be immediately, but at some point when you reach those limits, you can't just substitute away from technologies and achieve economic activity that continues to grow exponentially. Impossible. This is obviously a bit of a blow. We can't fix the engines whilst the plane is in the air. And that seems to be our only plan. And if you're still dubious as to whether this might work, Matthew did some more research just to double-check it. Here he is again. Okay, so, despite the fact that it's thermodynamically impossible in the long run, the UN built a model to prove that green growth will work, to prove that if we commit, all will be well in the end. They carefully constructed this model running the best-case scenario, saying, let's imagine we do a really good job in actually implementing policies that create green growth. Let's say we encourage clean energy by whacking a huge price on carbon emittance, so people don't want to do that. And we tax the extraction of materials from the earth, so people do less of that. Let's assume that governments around the world adopt pro-climate policies. Let's be optimistic and assume that technology will rapidly advance and more than double our efficiency. That's a pretty good green growth scenario. Kind of embarrassingly, this model showed that even with these policies, By 2050, we'd be looking at 132 billion tonnes of material every year. That's miles above the safe limit of 50 billion. Green growth doesn't really work, which isn't great news. The question I'm left with is why are we pursuing it then? Well, it strikes me that our logic is, quite simply, that it's our only choice. Because if we don't try green growth, if we don't fix the engine whilst the plane is in the air, then our only other option, according to the pilot, is to crash and burn. What's the crash and burn scenario? No economic growth. We stop growing. And without GDP steadily increasing each year, things vital to the running of society will plateau or drop. Things like wages, employment, public services, government spending, social initiatives... We stop progressing, even slide backwards. And that's a terrifying prospect. Without growth, society will collapse. That's the thing, isn't it? That's the core belief at the centre of this story. That's our protagonist's motivation for their goal. Growth must strive on, because otherwise everything will go to hell. But of course, when we're looking for faulty thinking, when we're reviewing our tightly gripped to narratives, we've got to check all the assumptions, especially those ones with fear attached to them, like for Dan, the ones that feel like life or death. And this central assumption underlying our economic model is that GDP is synonymous with well-being. And without it, our well-being will plummet. So let's double-check that. Time for one more economist. Let me try turning mine off because I, I can get some things from your facial expression, such as Would he please stop talking now? He said enough on this point. This is Peter Victor. I know he sounds English, but he's lived in Canada for most of his life. And if there's a Canadian out there who defies the cliché about Canadians being lovely, Peter is not that man. He is lovely. And he cares about people's well-being. And he doesn't think growth is a good way to ensure it. Now, I do want to say one thing, just because I I I generally steer clear of anecdotes. One of the graphs that I use in my presentations shows from 1945 to about 2015 in the US, two things, GDP per capita and the percentage of Americans who describe themselves as very happy. 
And what's happened is that since 1970, GDP per capita has risen steadily, maybe at a, a declining rate of increase with some ups and downs, but there's a, it's just been going up overall. Whereas the percentage of Americans who describe themselves as very happy has, if anything, declined. It's dramatic to see that. It's dramatic because it's not what we expect. When our economy grows, it creates the conditions in society in which we get more of the things we want and our well-being is increased. So in order to measure that, we just measure growth, we just measure GDP. And the assumption is that they're synonymous. Growth is well-being. And if that's the case, it makes sense to protect it at all costs. But something that's starting to become very apparent to Peter is that they are not synonymous. At best, it's a rough proxy. Okay, so to demonstrate what he means, I'm going to pose to you the same question that he posed to me. If growth equals well-being, that means that it can only be a good thing for us when our economy grows, no matter how it grows, right? So, say we sell the NHS, privatise healthcare so that we all have to pay for our heart attacks and C-sections. That would be great for the economy, thanks for all that extra money floating around. But would we be better off? Or how about transforming all of our national parks into logging mines for IKEA furniture? Again, it would be a boost. But what about our well-being? Peter says that this is what Herman calls ilf instead of wealth. And it's not taken into account in our current economic model. And the other side of the coin is that using GDP as our well-being metric means that anything that doesn't have a price isn't valuable. Things like the care parents provide for their children and elderly relatives, or the benefits of clean air, or lower inequality even. Things any idiot can tell you are vital for our well-being. And they're not counted. It can't be overstated. GDP only measures the size of a nation's economy. And that's it. It's a proxy for progress. It's not even a very good one. Actually, I often will describe what I do as storytelling. We are telling stories. And I, and I think if you're telling stories but not realising it, then that can be very, very dangerous. And I think that's one of the um, aspects of economic growth. Peter questioned this stuff, perhaps because he's under no illusions that economics is a perfect science. In fact, conveniently for this episode, he calls himself a storyteller. And he feels it's his duty as an economist to try and write a new story, one that makes more sense. Just to try to influence the public discussion and debate about what our options are. But you know, uh, it was uh, Margaret Thatcher who made famous the Tina principle. Tina, T-I-N-A, there is no alternative. Oh, yeah, there is no alternative, she told us. There's no alternative. Well, that's the most mind-numbing notion that you can have about the future. Our two economists, Peter and Tim, actually know each other. They got in touch when Peter was over in the UK and decided to go for a drink. Peter jokes that it was just because they both had without growth in the title of their books. And it was over this drink that they, inevitably, got to talking about an idea that had obsessed them both. What would happen if we just focused on things that actually increased our well-being? What would happen if we left growth out of the equation? If we got rid of the middleman? So, being economists, they decided to design a model. And in this model, they devised a new measure for progress. The Sustainable Prosperity Index, the SPI. And the SPI doesn't totally get rid of GDP, but it just takes other things into account as well. All of Herman's ilfs, unemployment, environmental impact, inequality, stuff that isn't accounted for currently and that we don't want, 
And this way, the SPI gives a much more accurate picture of how our economy is actually serving us. And growth? Well, that's sort of by the by. It's not treated as a bad thing, because it's not. It's just not the focus of the story. Remember how those other economists treated Herman Daly? Benign neglect? I'd say that Tim and Peter treat growth with benign neglect. It's just not the point anymore. So they put all of their relevant data into their model. And they ran three scenarios. Scenario number one was business as usual. We keep going as we're going. We put all those together in an index, and that continuation of past trends looks awful. It's a disaster scenario. Then we look at a second scenario where we say, OK, let's suppose we go really hard after greenhouse gas emissions, carbon emissions, uh, and we have a high and rising carbon tax. We go into renewables and the electric power sector. We have a lot of activity in the, every other sector as well and so on. Um, well, that's better. It's certainly a better future, but it's still a deterioration from the present because we're not paying attention to inequality and to indebtedness and to employment. That scenario is essentially green growth, trying to chase growth in a green way. It would be better than the current disaster model, but it still ultimately leads to our decline. It's sticking a plaster on a bullet wound. Then we have our sustainable prosperity scenario where we do have programs, initiatives, if you like, for all of these things. And eventually the economy stops growing and things look a lot better because we're scoring good points on all these other things. And then you have the third scenario, where we focus on what's needed for us. Lower inequality, healthy environment, low unemployment, that stuff. And eventually, because we're not chasing it at the expense of our well-being, growth kind of plateaus. But the plane doesn't crash. It comes down to land safely. Because what Tim and Peter have demonstrated is that if you treat growth with benign neglect and you actually focus on the things that society needs to be happy and healthy, then bingo. We start to see an economy that makes sense. Um, Because I think if we can show that we can manage quite well without growth in GDP, and by that I mean reduce impact on the biosphere, have a more equal society, have full employment and so on, then we're back to storytelling. Then we have a different story that we can tell And if enough people find it an attractive story, then it's a story that we can make happen. According to Tim and Peter's model, we can land the plane. We just need to redesign our economics a little. And that shouldn't be a wild suggestion. I mean, after all, it's what it's there for. To serve us. To help us design a happy and healthy society. Here's the thing. If you believe, without a doubt, that when you walk over that bridge, you're going to be terrified, and if you believe, without a doubt, that without economic growth, our society will collapse, then you're stuck. You can't move forward. You become the victim of your own self-imposed limitations because you're so certain you don't challenge them. But as Darren demonstrated to Dan, if you realise it might be more like a narrative that you've had an active role in building then you know it's at least worth checking your underlying assumptions, seeing whether it can be updated, improved, rewritten in a way that might take you in a different direction. And that gives you power. Because Peter's right. To believe that there is no alternative is one of the most unhelpful and mind-numbing beliefs you can have about the future. That's why he, along with economists like Tim and Herman, are still fighting so hard to get their work heard. 
to show us that economics is a way of designing our economy and it should serve us. So if it's not working, it should be redesigned. They want to show us that there is an alternative. And they're not the only ones. Kate Rayworth has her own story to tell. Despite having emerged from Oxford University, which is deep within the heart of traditional economics, she's referred to as a renegade economist. That's because she's saying something different to her peers. She's certainly on the same page as the people in this episode, though. Like Nella Meadows, she's used systems thinking to develop a new model. And like Tim and Peter, she's designed a new progress indicator to replace GDP, one that centres human and ecological well-being and ignores growth. It's so persuasive that Amsterdam have started trialling it as their economic model. And not only that, but Kate's dedicated to making her ideas accessible. Not boring and opaque and something beyond our remit. No, her book is written to be understood. It's where I found the plain analogy, and it's full of other great examples of storytelling that have made it a big, big bestseller. It turns out that people really like being able to understand what's going on. One of the best things about it, though, is the title. Donut Economics. And why is it called Donut Economics? Because she drew this diagram with the economy in the centre, and then she drew this big circle around it to represent the environment that we live in. Finally, the diagram's being seen. I asked Herman about it. He approves. You've been listening to The Water We Swim In. This episode is dedicated to the life and work of the great mind and consummate gentleman... Herman Daly, who has sadly died since our interview. If you're interested in finding out more about the revolutionary donor economics, head on over to our website, waterweswomen.co.uk. We have lots of extra resources on there, including links to accessible books, like Peter Victor's new book, Escape from Overshoot. Next week, we're going to deepen our understanding of the ideology behind economics. We're going to discover that we've been robbed of something we didn't even know we owned, and learn about a document that prevented kings from turning poachers into eunuchs. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. Producing this episode was me, Tilly Robinson. Co-writing was Matthew Robinson. Mixing by Naked Productions. And original music by Drew McFarlane.